Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. Mark chapter 11, 1 through 19. In the Brown Bibles, you can find it uh, on page 1572. 1572. For our culture, busyness, not business, but busyness is looked on as a very good thing. If you're busy, then people generally respect you and think highly of you. You look important. As a pastor, I've even given, been given advice from another pastor to always walk fast, whether you're going somewhere or not, whether you have something to do or not. You want to look busy even if you're not. This, this advice probably came from the business world. You want to look like you're busy even if you're not. We're so afraid of looking lazy that sometimes we go in the opposite direction. And for many of us, we're too busy for the things that are most important in life. It's this way in the church sometimes, too. We want to be busy with some new program, uh, some new ministry, always doing something. There's not a moment to lose. But I think we can learn something from our text in this regard. A lot of activity doesn't necessarily mean that good things are happening. A lot of busyness doesn't necessarily mean that we are doing the most important things or that we are doing the things that God wants us to do. Look at our text. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied to a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread their cloaks on, uh, while others spread branches they had cut in the field, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, "Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Ho Hosanna in the highest heaven!" Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables in the, of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In this passage, Jesus enters into Jerusalem as a king. And by cleansing the temple, 
he sets in motion his own suffering and eventual crucifixion. In fact, this instance begins Mark's narrative of the week of Jesus' passion. The week of Jesus' passion. By passion, we don't mean he's really into it, but this means the week of Jesus' suffering and death. When you hear someone speak of the Passion Week or Jesus' week of passion, they're referring to his suffering and death that last week of his life. Our passage is broken up into three main events or activities. First, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Second, his cursing of the fig tree. And third, his cleansing of the temple. And we'll see the significance of each of these as we go on. As Jesus and his disciples head towards Jerusalem, Jesus sends the disciples to get a colt. He gives them instructions. They follow it, and as they come, it's exactly as they find it. There's a colt. When they were getting it, people asked what they were doing. He said, the Lord needs it. We'll return it. And they said, okay. But notice what kind of colt it is, a colt on which no one had ever sat, an unused colt. There's something about this language that means this colt was set aside for a specific purpose, for a sacred use, a holy use. Think about other things in Jesus' life like this. Mary being a virgin. This colt. And also in the resurrection, the tomb, the, his burial, the, the tomb, a brand new tomb hewn out of stone, never been used. They were set apart for sacred, holy use, used only once. Other great kings or leaders perhaps would have ridden great stallions of horses, a horse that speaks to power and beauty, of authority. But Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a colt, a donkey, a young donkey, a symbol of peace and gentleness, a symbol really even of humility. Jesus was bringing peace, hope, and salvation. And the people were treating him like a king as he rode into Jerusalem. Mark says people spread their cloaks and leafy branches on the ground before him as he rode in. This was done to pay homage or respect. We, could, we would say something like they were really rolling out the red carpet for him, treating him as royalty as he rode in. It appears a crowd was behind Jesus following him, but there was also a crowd in front of him. And this speaks to the, the common uh, practice of the day in a royal procession into a town. If a king was coming, the crowd from the city would come out to meet the king and rejoice and then escort him back into the city. And it looks like this is what happened. People came out of Jerusalem to greet Jesus, to praise him and to escort him back. And as they walked, notice what they shouted. As Amy sang, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Many, if not most of you, have heard that, right? Hosanna in the highest. We hear it around Easter time, um, where we read this story typically, along with the resurrection. But maybe you've never understood what it means. Hosanna, is that just a name? Why are they, why are they shouting Hosanna? Interestingly, the crowd's words likely come from a passage in the Old Testament. Psalm 118, verses 25 to 27. Listen to what it says. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine upon us. With branches in hand, join in the feastal procession up to the horns of the altar. Hosanna is a Hebrew term for save us, O Lord. 
these crowds are shouting to Jesus as he's entering Jerusalem, Save us, Lord! They recognize there is something amazing about Jesus. He is their hope for salvation. Maybe they recognize even that He is the Messiah and that it's time for Him to show His true colors. He's going to come as King. He's finally going to do it. Save us, O Lord. The people are geared up and ready to go wherever He follows. He's going to establish His kingdom, they think. And of course, He is going to do just that, but not in the way that they think. As we've seen over and over, they think He's going to do something big, but they don't recognize the greatness of what he's going to do. You see, Jesus, for him, victory over his enemies didn't mean crushing them with the sword. It didn't mean overturning the Roman Empire. Victory for Jesus meant his sacrificial death on the cross for sinners. That's why he's going into Jerusalem. Everyone was rejoicing along with the Old Testament scripture of Zechariah 9.9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They were expecting a physical restoration of the kingdom of Israel, but they should have known better. They should have took note from the donkey, from the young donkey, him riding into Jerusalem. It symbolized the peace that he brings. They should have connected Psalm 118 Hosanna in the highest, save us, O Lord, with Isaiah 53, which also speaks of the Messiah, but as a suffering, dying Messiah for the forgiveness of sins. Just listen to how Isaiah 53, 12 reads. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Before any kind of glory, before any kind of kingdom, would come. There must be suffering. There must be a cross. There must be blood poured out of the veins of the Messiah for the forgiveness of sins. And yet he goes along with the praise. He goes along with the adoration as they enter into Jerusalem. Verse 11 says that they did enter Jerusalem, but it was late, so Jesus looked around at the temple and then went back to the city of Bethany with his disciples. In a few minutes, we'll see what he was looking at, what he observed as he looked at the temple. But first, think about this account of Jesus' cursing the fig tree. The next morning after entering Jerusalem as king, Jesus and the disciples head back out to Jerusalem. And on the way, Jesus is hungry, so he sees a tree down the road. It's full of leaves. Now, as Mark says a couple verses later, it wasn't the season for, for big, ripe, figs, but sometimes figs would sprout early. And usually if it had sprouted, the tree had sprouted leaves, you could expect there would be some little not quite ripe figs on it. It was a sign that it was producing fruit. So Jesus was hungry, thought it might have figs on it, so he went over to get some, but when he saw it, got there, it was only leaves. There were no fruit. So Jesus pronounces a curse on it. May no one ever free, eat fruit from you again. Mark makes special mention that the disciples heard him say this. What is happening here is Jesus is performing an acted parable. An acted parable. Do you remember what a parable is? A brief, memorable story in which Jesus is teaching a spiritual truth. 
So Jesus here is acting out a parable in order to teach. What does it teach then? This cursing of the fig tree. Commentator William Hendrickson says that this curse on the fig tree is an acted parable of judgment upon Israel, upon the people of God in Israel. Because of its leaves, the tree promised much, but provided nothing. It didn't produce any fruit. Just like Israel, the barren tree was a fit emblem for Israel. Jesus is making a point about trees that only pretend to have good fruit. And we can ask ourselves a few related questions. Are we like this fig tree? Are we like Israel? Do we pretend to have fruit? Do we pretend to put out, do we put out an outward display of religiosity and yet inwardly we are false? You know, it's possible to get dressed up and come to church and look like a Christian without being one. It's possible to deceive everyone in your family and everyone in the building. It's even possible to raise your voice in singing loud praises to God. It's possible to raise your hands in worship of God and yet not have the true thing. I was reminded of this when I saw a video this past week. It was... Um, it was a video trying to teach a point. It was people on stage as if in a praise band and they were singing praises. One lady was raising her hand and closing her eyes as she sang, Savior, I don't need a Savior. And yet, that might be how we do every Sunday. We can show outwardly great signs of religiosity and yet be inwardly false. Friends, let us not just be showy about our spirituality. Let us be genuine. Let us not simply be actors or actresses playing Christians. Let us be the genuine thing. Unless we are repentant and trusting in Jesus, we will wither just like the fig tree. We will wither because God's punishment will be on our heads. The disciples saw Jesus do all this. He, he hurt they heard him speak this, but it's probably they didn't get this acted parable, just like they didn't get any of the parables. So they, along with Jesus, continued down the road to Jerusalem, and look what Mark says in verse 15. Jesus entered the temple and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Wow, that's the side of Jesus we hadn't really seen before, isn't it? Or is it? He has harshly spoken to the Pharisees a few times. He's demonstrated his power and authority over demons. Come out! And in John chapter 2, we see that Jesus did this at the beginning of his ministry as well. Went into the temple and cleaned house. So Jesus, a second time here, cleanses the temple. And we have to understand a little bit about the temple in Jesus' day to, to get a clear picture of this, to understand what's going on. The temple was a huge, imposing, beautiful building. So don't just think a, little, a small little building with one room in it. This was immaculate. It was made up of at least four main areas. The first largest area on the bottom floor was the Gentile area. Now, Gentiles were allowed in this area of the temple, but they were allowed to go no further. 
everyone else, Jews, Jewish women, were allowed in this, this area as well. But the Gentiles were al allowed no further. Rise up about 14 steps led to the women's area. This is the place where Jewish women could come, but they could not go any further. In the same way as the Gentiles. And then rise up 15 more steps. This is Israel's level, which Jewish men could enter. So they could, Jewish men could go in the Gentile area, up to the women's area, up to the Israel's area. And then was the priest's area. And still further up, 12 more steps. Do you get a picture of how tall this building was? How huge it must have been? 12 more steps up was the main sanctuary area. So we're talking about a huge, impressive building with multiple levels. It would have been in this larger Gentile area, the, the lowest level, where what Jesus saw the previous night and where Jesus would have done this cleansing. So what did he see when he looked around the previous night? When he looked around and observed the temple? Instead of a place of worship, he saw a marketplace. Instead of a place of prayer, he saw a booming business with lots of profit to be made. People were supposed to come to the temple to make sacrifices of worship. They came to do what was instructed in the Old Testament. And one part said that it, if you lived far away, you didn't have to bring your animal all the way. It would be a, a big hassle. It would be difficult. So instead, you could bring your money with you to the temple, buy a sacrifice, and then present your sacrifice. This was their way of worshiping. Only problem was, it may have been that the priests and the sellers of the sacrifices came up with a sort of racket. They were making lots of money on these sales of animals. They were paying, people were paying high prices for sacrifice. And then there was a temple tax. You had to pay taxes as you entered into the temple. And there were the money changers, which charged extra money for getting the right currency. On top of all this big business, it, it appears that people were using the Gentile area, the temple, as kind of a, a shortcut across the city. The temple was no longer a place of worship and prayer. It was a place of business. And in Jesus' godly anger, he made a mess of the place. Can you imagine that? Imagine, there's no good contemporary example, but imagine maybe a, an outdoor flea market or a flea market in a, a big warehouse type, type building and someone comes in and starts turning over tables of merchandise. People are trying to walk with merchandise and they stop them. No, you can't go through here. Can you imagine the scene that that would cause? And Jesus calls the scene here with his actions. So many people around, such big crowds, trying to buy and sell and change money. So he calls the scene, and he took the opportunity to teach. And as he taught them, Jesus said, Is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 56, verses 7 to 8. He says, My people... I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Jesus uses this passage and the term specifically all nations to teach something about his kingdom. 
he has come not only for the Jews, those who were thought to be the people of God, he has also come for all nations, for all people, for the Gentiles included. He has come for the Gentiles, those not physically descended from Abraham, from the Hebrew people. As God said through Isaiah, I will yet gather others to him besides those already gathered. But instead of it being a house of worship and prayer for all nations, it became a den of robbers. This is coming from Jeremiah 7, verses 9 through 11. In that place, God says, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjure, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching. He goes on in the following verse to pronounce judgment on Jerusalem and its temple, and judgment is coming soon. The lesson here, as one commentator says, the lesson here conveyed applies today as it did then. When the practice of so-called religion becomes nothing but a means to what people are really interested in, such as convenience, social advancement, mere financial gain, there's nothing left to genuine devotion. The house of prayer becomes a source of personal profit instead of a house of worship. I fear today that we have again made God's house into a den of robbers instead of a place of worship. Not that the building itself is God's house. Understand that. It is not. We, God's people, we Christians, as we gather together for worship to sing praises, to build up the church, to hear His word, we are the temple of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And He is present with us even now. Have you recognized that? The Spirit of the Lord is present with us, friends. But it's not that we have a lot of commerce going on in our churches. That may happen in some, I guess, but I think our current temptation is different. In this day and time, our temptation is to become a house of entertainment and consumerism rather than a house of prayer and worship. House of entertainment and consumerism. The way to attract new churchgoers is to give them what they want. Attract them with good coffee. That might bring me. Good coffee and free snacks. Attract them with brilliant, amazing light shows. Attract them with a great performance from a rocking band or a rock star of a preacher. Attract them with whatever you can attract them with, all in the name of getting more people to church. I'm sure this temptation will come or has come to us as well. But don't misunderstand me. We do want more people to come to church, right? And not only in our church. We want every church in Gibsonville to be filled. Every church in North Carolina to be filled with people but we don't want it to happen in the wrong ways and for the wrong reasons because then we're spinning our wheels. We must make sure that when we come together for worship, we are a house of prayer and worship. This is the reason we exist. Don't lose focus of this. The reason we exist is to worship God. The first purpose for which we were created is to worship God. 
No other purpose or activity is greater than that. If we do not worship Him, the Scripture tells us all of creation will cry out in worship. By Jesus cleansing the temple, He is teaching us, He's teaching everyone, that the house of God is for the worship of God. If we don't worship here, we're wasting our time. After this grand display that Jesus gives, the religious leaders began looking for a way to kill Him. They saw their chance was coming soon and they were eager for it, but they also knew the people loved Jesus and were amazed at His teachings, so they couldn't touch Him, at least not yet. See, the religious leaders and many of those in the temple were just like the fig tree that had no fruit. By all accounts, it would have looked like things were going well for the temple. Business was booming, had plenty of money, had plenty of activity, but Jesus exposes it all for what it is, a charade, a fake, a tree with lots and lots of leaves but no fruit. And just like the fig tree, Jesus would curse Jerusalem and its temple to destruction. And just like the fig tree, it would wither and be destroyed. But that's not the end of just the fig tree or the temple. That same destruction is for anyone who is not in Christ. That same destruction is for anyone who is not also a worshiper of Jesus. That destruction is for anyone who has not repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus. You know what I mean by repentance? It's not just acknowledging that you are a sinner. That's part of it, but that's not it. Repentance is brokenheartedness over your sin. Brokenhearted sorrow that you have offended a great God in such a way. In our story, Jesus is about six days away from the crucifixion. In less than a week in our story, Jesus would be hanging from two pieces of wood, nailed by His hands and feet, blood streaming from His body, suffering in agony and having the punishment of God upon Himself. And He did it all so that sinners like you and me could be forgiven of our sins. He died on the cross so that you wouldn't have to rot like a, a barren fig tree. He died to wipe away your sins and to bear fruit in your life. I ask you, Christian, non-Christian, will you again confess your sins to the Lord, repent of your sins, and trust in Jesus to save you? There's also an exhortation for us Christians, a challenge for us from this text. It's a challenge that we would not just be all show, but that we would commit to being genuine in our worship and in our life. It's a challenge that we would not be consumed with whether or not everything in the service was to our liking or to our preference. Our worship is not about us, it's about God. It's not about whether we are pleased with our worship, it's whether God is pleased with our worship. Let's make this place, as we come together for worship, a place not of entertainment or consumerism or criticism, but a place of worship for our supreme God. Let's make sure that this place is a house of prayer, a house of worship for the Lord Jesus Christ. That day in Jerusalem, Jesus was riding a young colt as king into Jerusalem. But we get another picture of Jesus in Revelation 19. We will see that Jesus one day will ride a different sort of animal. Listen to how John explains it 
in Revelation 19, beginning verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's power. That's royalty. That's authority. That's our king as he will come again. Friends, that day is coming. That day is coming and it may be soon, but it's not here yet. It's not time for judgment and wrath yet. Now is the time of peace. Now is the time for hope for all peoples. Now is the time to call people out of the darkness of this world, into the light of the salvation of Jesus Christ. The Scripture says God is waiting patiently. He's delaying the time of Jesus' Jesus's return, delaying the time of judgment, so that all God's people might come to Him and worship. He's gathering worshipers from all peoples, from all nations. He's gathering worshipers for Himself, and He has called us to worship Him and to gather others to worship Him as well. Friends, are we a part of His mission? Do we have the same patience with people? Do we have the same passion for people that they would become worshipers of Jesus? Or are we content to allow them to continue on their way to hell?